You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. You know, something that's often portrayed as a desirable character in somebody, you know, if you're, someone's going for a job, uh, or, you know, someone that is very popular with other people in different circumstances, uh, something that often people look up to and, and seek after is, is the idea of someone being confident. They have confidence, right? And so there's someone that they, they hold their head up high, you know, they walk with their back straight, they, they are assertive, uh, they, they speak boldly, they're someone who's confident. And so often, again, it's a quality that many in the world desire to see in people and wish they had in themselves. But often when we're talking about confidence in someone, that someone is a confident person, we're talking about someone who has confidence in themselves. They have confidence in their own know-how, in their own ability, in their own whatever about themselves, whatever it is. Now the Bible, though, does call us to confidence and that we are to be confident, but not confident in ourselves. Instead, the Bible calls us to have confidence in Jesus Christ. That we lay aside any confidence in ourselves, anything about our own ability, our own know-how, our own anything. As a matter of fact, we recognize we can't do anything apart from Christ. That our confidence would be in Him and in Him alone. That's what the Bible seeks for us to have, tells us to have. That's the kind of confidence that we should uh, be seeking after. And I think as we look to our passage here this morning, it's very clear where Paul's confidence is. And it's very clear where Paul wants the Thessalonians' confidence to be. Again, not in themselves. Paul's confidence not in himself, but in Christ and in Christ alone. In God and what God can do and what God accomplishes and what he has determined would be in promised. Now, last week... Uh, we said that we were in a, a, a section that was a transition between breaks in this letter. And at the beginning of that, the, the section before that transition, uh, Paul was talking about end times theology. And, and in that, first of all, he was reminding the Thessalonians of their hope of glory and the judgment that would come when Christ returned. And he was doing that to help them to persevere through the persecution and afflictions that they were facing. That they would know that that was not the end all and there was the hope of glory awaiting. And then he would go on, again, with end times theology, but teaching, uh, correcting the false teaching that had come into the church there. That the Thessalonians had been moved in their thinking and they were alarmed in their emotions, thinking that they were in the time of God's judgment being poured out on the earth. They were in the day of the Lord. And so Paul was correcting that teaching, explaining that before that day came, certain things would have to be in place. And so they could not be yet in the day of the Lord. And so again, in all of those things, we see this end times theology developed. 
And so as Paul was teaching doctrine, we come now uh, in this transi- through the transition and we come into Paul's exhortation. And as he transitioned into this, Paul expressed his gratitude to God for choosing the Thessalonians. And again, he assured them of the confidence and security there is in salvation. And he urged them to stand firm and hold to the apostolic teaching that was passed down to them from Paul, either in person by word or through a letter. Then he expressed his prayerful desire to God for the Thessalonians, that God would comfort their hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. Now, as we come to this new section here, these first five verses, I think, are an introductory to this section. And we have here in the first two verses, Paul tells the Thessalonians to pray for him Silas and Timothy, as they take the gospel to other places, probably specifically to Corinth, as that's where Paul was writing this letter. And in verse 3, Paul moves from asking for prayer for them to encouraging the Thessalonians through the opposition that they faced. And then in verse 4, it seems that there he is leading into what he really wants to get to in this section. Uh, He starts talking about obedience and his confidence in them for obedience. As in this section we'll see, he has to bring correction. And then in verse 5, once again, Paul expressed prayerful desire to God for the Thessalonians. And again, in all of this, I think we see where Paul's confidence lied for his ministry, for him taking the gospel into the world. And we see where Paul wanted his com- the confidence of the Thessalonians to be. Again, not in themselves but in God. And so let's read this passage here for this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So as we see in this first verse, this section begins, at least as we see here in the English Standard Version, by Paul saying, finally, brothers. Now, Paul is not bringing his letter to a conclusion yet at this point. As a matter of fact, there is, what, 13 verses yet to go after these five. And so it's not that he's concluding, but this word that's translated here as finally is a word that is used to mark a transition, is to mark a new section in the letter. Sometimes it is the final section, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And so I think that's what's going on here. He's just marking a new section in his letter. And we see this as the NIV 11, for instance, translates this as, as for other matters, or the Christian Standard Bible, in addition. Or some may say, the things that are remain to be said. And so in this section, with the things that are remain to be said, as he's introducing those things, he starts off by asking the Thessalonians to pray for him, Silas, and Timothy. Paul made it clear in both of his letters that him, Silas, and Timothy, they were praying faithfully for the Thessalonians. 
Now, we've seen that clearly as we looked at the first letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. There it says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, we read, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And then earlier in this letter, 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 1, verse 11 to 12, we read this. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, we see the things that Paul was praying for concerning the Thessalonians, and we see that they were faithfully praying for the Thessalonians. And now, Paul is asking the Thessalonians to pray for them. And this isn't the first time he's asked. Again, in the first letter, in chapter 5, verse 25, he said, Brothers, pray for us. He asked for prayer. Now, as they were brothers in the gospel, brothers in Christ, brothers in the church, that he was confident that he could ask them for prayer, and that he himself would be praying for them as he cared for them. And really, us in the church, this, this back and forth and this, this mutual idea of praying for one another should be understood among us. That we are brothers and sisters. We want to see the work of God in each other. We want to see growth in one another. So we should be praying for each other. And as we pray for each other, know that we are also prayed for. And in prayer, what are we doing? We're relying on God to do His work in each one's lives. We're relying on God uh, it's not ourselves. When we lack prayer, it's often an indication that we're, we're trusting in ourselves and relying on us. Prayer shows that we know that God is sovereign over all things. And we must depend upon Him. And so, my friends, we should be praying for each other and lifting each other up before God and, and know, too, that we are being prayed for as well. And as the Thessalonians prayed for Paul and his co-workers, there's a sense in which they were joining in and supporting Paul's ministry. As they sought for God to do his work through Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And so too, knowing that each of us have a ministry, each of us have a calling in God as we serve in the church, and as we serve outside the church, in our our own homes, and and our neighborhoods, and workplace, and everything else. There, There is ministry for all of us there, and we can join in with each other in those ministries as we pray for each other, and lift each other up before God. And so we should be doing so. And not only that, but if you go out into the foyer here, on the table, There are two missionary updates with pictures of those missionaries. And even though there's only one of the two that are out there that we support financially, and just really quick too, uh, I don't want you to have the wrong idea as I say this, uh, supporting Caleb Succo financially, uh, we should see one as a, a privilege and two as a responsibility as we come alongside of them financially to support the gospel going out, to support what they're doing. And we pray that God would allow us to grow in being able to support him financially and support Sarah and her team financially as well, if if the Lord wills. 
But either way, we have the opportunity to pray for both right now. And that's no small peas. To lift them up before the Lord in prayer, we are joining in their ministry and what they're doing in taking the gospel out into the world. And so we should understand our prayer in that sense. Here, Paul prays uh, or requests prayer in two aspects of his and his co-workers' ministry. First, he asks for prayer that the word of the Lord may speed ahead, or literally it says to run. Or I think in this context, you can translate it as to advance. That Paul wanted the gospel to advance like a runner, without anything slowing it down or anything in its way to hinder the progress of the gospel. So he's asking, pray for the gospel to advance and to be honored. As Paul was a missionary planting churches, he purposed in preaching the gospel. And as people were saved, churches were started by those who heard the gospel, being saved, gathered together. And so Paul planted churches in that way. And so Paul was asking the Thessalonians to pray for them regarding the continued advance of the gospel. That the gospel would be honored, or you could say glorified which happens through people when they hear the gospel and through the power of God receive it for what it is. Uh, not the word of men, not the, the stories of men, but as the word of God. And when it's received as the word of God, the gospel is honored. And when they receive it as the word of God, they believe it and are saved. So Paul is praying for this. And as he asks them to pray for the advancement and honor of the gospel, he says that he's, pray, he's asking them to pray for the very thing that already happened among them. At the Thessalonians, they, they came to be saved when God, through the preaching of Paul and Silas, advanced the gospel to them. And that in the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel was honored among them as they received it as the word of God. And so they're to be praying for this. What happened to them, pray that it happens in other places of the world as Paul took the gospel out. And listen, again, are we praying for the advancement of the gospel? Are we praying for the gospel to be honored as it goes out? And if we are, are we not praying for what God did among us? That God brought the gospel to us? God made the gospel known to us? That by us hearing the gospel, we would receive it as the word of God? And so be saved? Are we not grateful that God did that for us? That God took our, our dead hearts of stone and gave us hearts of flesh that could believe the gospel and would beat for him? Are we not grateful for God's work among us? That we would also want to see it go out into the world, that take that effect to other people, that they would be saved and believe. We want to see that happen. And so you want to see that happen, again, are you praying for it to happen? You know, we mentioned evangelism for a little bit there in the beginning of Sunday school and how it is a command for us to take the gospel out, that we are all commanded to do so. And so do you take the gospel out? Do you fulfill that commandment? And if so, are you praying for the gospel to be advanced and to take effect? And I, I would suggest to you, if you're not praying for, about it, you shouldn't be doing it. Because if you're not praying about it, then you're trying to take the gospel out in your own power, as if you have power to save anybody. 
but you don't. To take out the gospel, we should be looking to the only one who can save, the only one who can advance the gospel and cause it to be honored through those who hear it. We should look to God and show our dependency upon Him, our confidence in Him, that we may take the gospel out. And so if you're not praying about it, the answer isn't, well, I haven't prayed, so I guess I just won't evangelize then. No, that's not the answer either. The answer is to be obedient. Pray. Pray to Him who saves. And in obedience, go out in confidence in Him with the gospel, praying that He would advance it and He would cause it to have its effect. So we need to be doing this, praying to this extent knowing that the gospel can only be advanced and can only take effect by the sovereign power of God. It's all His doing in the work of His Holy Spirit. And then the other aspect of Paul's prayer request was that the Thessalonians would pray for Paul and Silas and Timothy's deliverance from wicked and evil men. As Paul and his co-workers took the gospel into different cities, they faced opposition. They faced persecution. Even before Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, they came there passing to, through two other cities from Philippi. Philippi, where they were arrested and beaten. And then as we discussed, looking at Acts 17 in the introduction to this series, there in Thessalonica, as the gospel took hold, Jealous Jews began to persecute the church there. And those believers there in Thessalonica, things got so bad that they found it wise for Paul and Silas to escape the city under the cover of night. And so they left Thessalonica and went to Berea only to have those Jewish agitators follow them there. And also, when Paul went to Corinth where he wrote First and Second Thessalonians, he faced opposition from both Jews and Gentiles. Wherever Paul and his co-workers took the gospel, it was pretty certain that they were going to face opposition. And so Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for deliverance from such opposition, from wicked and evil men, from evil or morally abased men, wicked men. And if we take these two aspects of Paul's prayer requests in tandem, then the deliverance Paul wanted the Thessalonians to pray for was deliverance that would then allow the gospel to go out freely, to run without any obstacle in its way. You see, because as the gospel faced opposition, it was very clear and should have been clear to the Thessalonians that the, the response that the gospel had among those initial believers there in Thessalonica was not the common response. The majority response to the gospel was opposition and is opposition. And so the reason Paul gave this request for deliverance, for them to pray for that, was, as we see at the end of verse 2, for not all have faith. Not all believe the gospel. And so, instead of receiving the gospel, they stand in opposition to the gospel. And so, stand in opposition against those who preach the gospel. My friends, if we are faithful to the gospel truths, 
If we are obediently proclaiming the gospel, then we should expect to face opposition as we preach the gospel in the unbelieving world. Even for us here in the land of the free, where we are to have, supposed to have, freedom of speech and freedom of religion. But long before our freedoms were being quickly and systematically stripped away, there was opposition and growing opposition to the gospel. The gospel that proclaims Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved. As many put themselves in the place of God, setting up their own standard of good and evil, a standard that by which they can work for their salvation and pat themselves on the back and say, look, I'm, I'm good. Because by the standards of men, most of us are doing pretty good. By my own standard, I'm certainly doing pretty good. But by setting up our own standard, we put ourselves in the place of God. We put ourselves in opposition to Him. And the world does not have faith. The world does not believe. And so as we are faithful to the call to take the gospel out, we should expect persecution. We should expect opposition. I mean, this is what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And there, Paul was referring to Timothy following his example of the things in his life, which included the persecution and suffering Paul faced as he went to Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. These persecutions which Paul had to endure as he took the gospel out. So let us pray. That despite whatever opposition may come, even opposition from our government, even opposition from our own family members, let us pray that God would advance his gospel and God would honor his gospel in the world. That the gospel is advanced and honored through those who take it out, like Pastor Suko. Let's pray that through his ministry, God is advancing the gospel and people are being saved. Uh, let's pray for the team uh, that Sarah Philemon is on that, that are taking the gospel to Romania. Let's pray that God would advance the gospel and that it would be honored there in Romania and people would be saved. Uh, let's pray that the gospel is advanced through North Valley Baptist Church. That we would see the advancement of the gospel here in Mayfield and in Carbondale Township in Carbondale and, and Abington and Clark Summit and Dixon City and Greenfield and Archibald and wherever, everywhere else that's represented here. Sorry if I missed something. But yeah. But let us see, desire to see it advance. So let us take it out and be praying to God that he would do so because only God can do so. Let be the desire of our hearts. As the whole time we are confident, not in ourselves, but in our God to save. That he would do his will and his work as we follow him in obedience. But if we do so, we should expect opposition. And so how do we do that? How do we take the gospel out? How do we uh, persevere in the face of persecution? Well, by looking at the encouragement that Paul gave to the Thessalonians. Here in verse 3, Paul moved from asking for prayer for him and his co-workers to encouraging the Thessalonians and the opposition that they faced. 
you know, in the English, it's hard to see the connection between verse 2 and verse 3. Uh, but as many have pointed out, it's, it's pretty clear in the Greek. There is a play on words that Paul was doing here to make the connection between the two verses. That Paul talked about those that do not have faith. But transitions into verse 3 here, looking at the faithfulness of God. Those who do not believe the gospel, they don't have faith, but God is faithful. And that's what we see. It's exactly the encouragement he gives. He says, but the Lord is faithful. No matter what we face, no matter what persecution comes, no matter what evil afflicts us, no matter how chaotic the world is or even our personal lives, the Lord is faithful, working all things together for his good, for our good and his glory. Right? That's Romans 8, 28 and 29. All things out working for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For his glory. And he will fulfill his purposes. Not one of his purposes will fail. He holds up his word. He will do it. There is none like him. As Psalm 89 says, his faithfulness surrounds him. So Paul could rest assured that the Thessalonians, through everything they faced, that they could have confidence in God who would establish them or strengthen them. God who would guard them against the evil one. And to guard them is the idea of to watch over for protection. It is God who strengthens, and it is God who protects, like a shepherd watching over his flock. And God strengthens his own and watches over them to protect them against, as the English Standard Version has here, the evil one. Now, if you have the ESV, it says evil one, but also note that there's a footnote there. The evil one's a good translation. It could also be translated just as evil, that he protects against evil in general. And again, the Greek could go either way. And if Paul meant the evil one, then he's referring to Satan, who lies behind all rebellion and schemes against God and his gospel and those whom Christ purchased with his blood. If it is just evil, which it could be, as Paul talked about the evil of men and talking about the, the evil that's afflicted against the Thessalonians in a, in a general sense even, could very well be that. But in any case, it is God who strengthens and God who guards. But let's think about that further. What does it mean that God strengthens and God guards? What does that mean then that whatever evil is out there or the evil one himself, Satan, won't touch us? That we won't be affected by that? That we won't face ourselves persecution and suffer in that way? <laughs> Clearly not. I mean, again, there's a reason Paul is asking for deliverance from wicked and evil men. Because he was having to endure persecution himself, along with Silas and Timothy. And he was also writing to a people, the Thessalonians, who were enduring under persecution and all kinds of affliction. And so clearly that can't be the case. Well, then what does it mean? Does it mean that it won't physically harm us or kill us? No, it doesn't mean that either. <laughs> Again, we just look at Paul's life, everything he went through. He's, he was left to, de to die at least once. And we know eventually he did die under persecution. So it couldn't be that either. Was well, it the promise that the persecution won't last, that the suffering won't last? Well, it at least won't last through eternity. We know that, right? 
However long it may last in this life, we really don't have a promise or guarantee for it. It may continue throughout this life, but we know that whatever we go through, whatever we face, whatever we see in this life is only temporary. What we have is the hope of eternity. The same hope that Paul gave the Thessalonians, that the day was coming when they would shine Christ's glory in the kingdom. And the day was coming when Christ's final justice would be inflicted on those who afflicted persecution on his people. So no, this, this suffering will not last. That's true. And there is hope. Hope that causes us to persevere. But all the more, in, in God strengthening and God guarding, it's the idea that even through the suffering, that he will hold us firm. That we will not be lost. We will not fall away. That through it all, in the end, we will remain in Christ and remain saved. He will strengthen us to persevere and guard us that we will remain with him through it all and know his grace. Matter of fact, as we look at these Greek verbs uh, to strengthen and to guard, these are in the future active, uh, which one commentator points out should be understood as progressive future. That as we continue to go through this suffering, he will continue to strengthen us and continue to guard us through it all. That he will hold us to himself. He will keep us saved. And in the end, we will know the victory of Christ. That's the great hope that we have. Hope that we have looking to the future, looking to eternity with Christ when we shine his glory throughout the kingdom. But hope that we have whenever we leave this world, whether it's in death or in Christ coming for his church. We have that hope. That was Paul's hope as he came near to the end of his life. Even as he sat in prison for however long and and endured persecution in all kinds of ways. He knew that when God took his spirit out of his body and and called him home to be with the Lord. He would no longer suffer these things. That even though Paul talks about death in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, as an enemy. For the believer, death really is a servant. That when we die, we are ushered out of the sin-tainted body and the affliction of this evil world to be with our Lord. And that was Paul's hope, even as he faced death. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, it says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew that God would sustain him. God would strengthen him through it all and guard him that he could hold on to the hope that in the end he would be with the Lord and would escape all of these things, all of this suffering, that God would bring him safely into the heavenly kingdom. How great is that hope? And that even beyond that, we have the hope of eternally being with Christ forever, resurrected in these glorified bodies to shine his kingdom, to shine in his kingdom. Then at this point in Paul's letter here. He then moves into leaning into what his purpose in this section is, which is to bring correction. And so he desired obedience from the Thessalonians, obedience to God. And as we discussed in these two letters to the Thessalonians, overall, 
the Thessalonians were living in obedience, even though there were still some among their number that needed to be called to repentance and be corrected. But again, overall, they were living faithfully. And so Paul expressed his confidence in them concerning the commands he had and the commands he gave them as an apostle. An apostle being one who was chosen by Christ, sent by Christ into the world, with Christ's authority delegated to them. Those who saw the risen Lord, those who could show it, as we said in Sunday school again, by signs and wonders, Paul was an apostle and so had the authority of Christ to say, look, this is what Christ commands. And he was confident that the Thessalonians would continue to be obedient as they were obedient overall. And so Paul expressed his confidence, but his confidence, again, was not in the Thessalonians themselves. His confidence is in the Lord and what the Lord had done in them, the Lord's work. Paul can express confidence even though the Thessalonians were in the midst of persecution, which I'm sure would tempt them to fall away and tempt them to turn in on themselves and focus in on themselves. Paul, no, could still have confidence that they would be obedient and not fall away. He'd have confidence in their faithfulness because he knew God would strengthen them and God would guard them from the evil one. And with this confidence, he knew ultimately that they were and would persevere. So just as it's been clear through both Paul's letter to the Thessalonians and Paul's words and prayer, asking for prayer, that his confidence is in the Lord and to accomplish his work, we understand that Paul has no reliance on the flesh for his own work to be accomplished and for what he should be seeing in the Thessalonians. It was God who chose them. It was God who would sustain them. And God would keep them faithful to himself, bringing them home to himself. And that's the same for us as well. The salvation God has planned, that God has accomplished, and that God has applied by his Holy Spirit is all that he has done. He has accomplished it. And the continuing of that salvation and the progressive aspect of salvation and sanctification and in growing in obedience and even in the sustaining through whatever we face in this life is all of God and his work in our lives. Yes, we, we have responsibility to be obedient. We have responsibility to follow after him in faithfulness. And so when we don't, when we fall into sin, when we waver, that's on us. But as we continue in faithfulness, as we are sustained and strengthened, that is all of God. He gets all the credit and all the glory. And so our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in God. And then in verse 5, Paul expresses his prayerful desire for the Thessalonians. Verse 5 says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Paul wanted the Lord to direct the Thessalonians' hearts so that he would accomplish his purposes in them. Specifically, I think in the immediate context, it's their obedience. And so Paul's prayer was that the Lord would direct their hearts to the love of God the love that God had for them. 
that they would remember and reflect on God's love. And where, where do we see God's love most pronouncedly proclaimed to us? Where is God's love most greatly known to us? In the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. That we would reflect and remember the gospel. And as we reflect and remember the gospel, that the gospel, the love of God, stirs on our loving obedience in return. And so in two, we persevere, we continue on. No matter what we face, as we keep our, our focus on, on what Christ has done for us and the love of God in Jesus Christ. We continue on and, and live in obedience and persevere through it all. And so therefore can follow the example of Christ's perseverance, as Paul calls for here. Following Christ's example, who persevered under affliction, who has what we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint. And so Paul, in his prayer, that the Lord would direct the Thessalonians' hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of God, in both cases, it is a prayer that their hearts would be directed to the gospel. That they would see the gospel before them. See, our error is when we think that the gospel is only to be preached to the unbelievers. Our error is when we fail to preach the gospel to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our error is when we face, fail to preach the gospel to ourselves. The gospel is not just to save the lost. The gospel is not just what gets me started. The gospel carries me the whole way through. It's the very thing that puts the love of God most vividly before me. The very thing that, that places the perseverance of Christ and his suffering before me, that I may follow his example. It is the greatest means in the work of the Holy Spirit that I may persevere and follow Christ. It is the love of God being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that motivates us and empowers us in loving obedience to God. Consistent growth and commitment and obedience comes from the inward commitment solidified in the gospel by the power of the Spirit. That when, even when we need correction, like we're going to see Paul bring to the Thessalonians, the gospel allows us to receive the rebuke. Because in the gospel, our failures have already been dealt with. And we are free then to receive the rebuke, turn around and live for God. Our sin and guilt due to our sin does not have to weigh us down and keep us from getting up and living as we should. No, but our, our sin and guilt has been dealt with in Jesus already. And so we can be empowered to get up from our fall, to take the rebuke to heart and live in obedience to our God. So my friends, let's remember who our confidence must be in. Your confidence should not be in you. Be confident, but not confident in yourself. And my confidence must be in me, or not in me, but in Christ. We must see what he has done, what he has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, and the work that he continues to do in us, in the power and work of the Holy Spirit. 
as we talk about this, the idea of confidence in ourselves, that's just immaturity. But we should be pressed on to maturity, which is growing in Christ in everything. And so have full and great confidence in God and God alone. Have confidence in God as we take the gospel out. Confidence in God that he will advance his gospel and he will have it take the effect that he has called for it to in the lives of those who hear the message of Christ. Have confidence as we face persecution and we suffer affliction in this world. Have confidence that God will strengthen and guard us against the evil one and that he will bring us safely home. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.